Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. Did you know that the largest civil rights demonstration in American history was the February 1964 Freedom Day strike by 360,000 elementary and secondary school students in New York City? As we close out Black History Month, noted African-American historian V.P. Franklin joins us with the often underreported story of the role of young people in the civil rights movement. His new book is titled The Young Crusaders. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. We as parents, I think we could do a great help if we walk in the street of mine. Well, I think this is one of the most wonderful demonstrations and stabs for freedom that the Negro in Chicago has ever had. We are definitely interested in the education of our children. We want quality in education, and this is the main reason why we're marching today. books we get, they aren't new books, they are secondhand books, and some of the teachers have explained it to us, and we don't have enough books to go around. Very much in favor of integration, and I'm sorry that um, Mr. Willis hasn't done more about it. That is a clip about the 1963 boycott from a 2017 documentary called 63 Boycott about the Chicago school's protests that year. Dr. V.P. Franklin, it is one of the many stories told in your new book called The Young Crusaders. What's the central thesis of your book? Well, I'm I'm really uh, documenting the activities of children and teenagers in civil rights campaigns uh, across the country uh, that were organized by civil rights activists and leaders. Uh, local uh, politicians, local uh, civil rights activists, and the students and the children and the young people participated in those activities. So I'm documenting those. But then I'm also documenting uh, what the students and the young people did themselves in terms of organizing their own demonstrations, Uh, sit-ins, boycotts, marches. They organized themselves and made uh, significant changes in a, lot of, in a lot of parts of the country. Well, what was the impact of the involvement of these young people? Well, the, the, uh, the, the major area where we know the young people had the, were, were on the front line and doing most of the uh, mark, uh, protesting or activism, let's say civil rights activism, of course, was in school desegregation. So you had, you had elementary school students 
and, and teenagers, high school, junior high school students who agreed, who agreed to be the first ones to uh, integrate all white elementary schools, high schools. And so we, so, so the focus initially was on the stu- these students, and of course we know about the Little Rock Nine, but there were, there were students in various states around the country who agreed to be the first ones to desegregate the public schools uh, in, their, in their town, in their city. And this required a decision on the part of the parents to let the students participate and do it because there will be, there may be some kind of, of, of attack or uh, protest against it. So the parents had to agree, but then the young people had to agree and that they would be willing to sacrifice a lot of things in order to be the first ones to uh, enter these previously all white uh, public and private schools. The students who actually did this this desegregation, the ones who were the first, were usually very, very good students. They were, they were honor students. They were president of clubs. Sometimes they were president of student government. But they were willing to make that sacrifice. They were willing to put all that aside and be subjected to all whatever may come in being the first to desegregate those schools. So that, so, so that was that was one area where the teenagers and the young people uh, were called upon and they responded. How does your work in documenting the role of children and teens in the movement change public understanding of it? Well, we have to, we have to think in terms of the various studies that have been done on civil rights activists, on the civil rights movement. Initially, we had, this, we had the uh, story of Dr. King and the Montgomery Bus Boycott and the large campaigns in Selma, Birmingham, et cetera. And there was a focus on the leaders. And most of those were male at that time. So then uh, researchers beginning in the 1980s and 1990s, they began to document the role of women in the civil rights campaigns and marches around the country. And the uh, the story of the civil rights movement then begins to change. It's, it's not just the civil rights leaders in Washington, in, in, in uh, Birmingham or in Atlanta determining what went on. It was women organizing on the ground in these local communities, serving as a bridge to the national civil rights organization. So these women, they organized protests in their local community, and then they were attached to the larger organization, CORE, SCLC, the NAACP, they were, uh, they were attached to them. And so some people have uh, pointed out and they began to document women's role as the, what they call bridge leaders. They were bridges between the local communities and the local campaigns and the national movement. But also you had women who led these campaigns, who organized these campaigns. And so we get, so you, so you had a number of studies that, uh, documented women's leadership roles in various civil rights protests and campaigns around the country. Now, so so we have the leaders, we have the women, but when we actually see who participated initially in many of these protests that may have been or- organized by the women, the ones who actually participated 
oftentimes were teenagers. For example, the, uh, in the case of, of Selma, you had civil rights activists coming to the town, holding meetings, usually in the churches, saying that they were going to organize a protest in downtown, in the in downtown for a restaurant or a supermarket or a, or a bus terminal. And so they would have this meeting and all the local community would show up and they say, okay, so tomorrow morning at nine o'clock, we're going to be out there picketing the bus terminal. So make sure you're there. And that we, and, and because we need to desegregate this facility. At nine o'clock that next morning, many times it was the teenagers who showed up. It was the teenagers who actually showed up for these protests initially because they, they, were not under the constraints that their parents were or, or, or other leaders, religious leaders, et cetera, in the community who felt that, that if they participated in this, in this march, in this protest, in this sit-in, that that would uh, affect their livelihood. But the teenagers, you know, they, they, didn't, they weren't working, they weren't concerned about it, they were students, and they would show up and they would participate in the marches and the protests or in the sit-ins and then they would be arrested. Many of the teenagers would be arrested. They would be taken to jail. Their parents would be called. The parents would come and bail them out, or the NAACP would bail them out. And, um, and then the parents said, oh, well, if my, my son and my daughter can do this, they're doing the right thing. I need to participate as well. So, so in many of these cases, in many of these incidents, you had it was the teenagers who initiated the protest, and then adults, their parents and other adults joined because to some extent they were embarrassed by the fact that the teenagers had done this and they had not participated in the protests. In addition to uh, teenagers' activism leading to this increased participation, you also make the case that the conditions under which children were treated uh, really began to appall people around the United States and around the world, which added to its success. Can you talk about that? You know, yeah, the uh, the photos, the film footage of the attacks on the uh, children uh, and, and 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 teenagers, and you know, et cetera. That this was this was shown all over the country, all over the world, and there there was a response in terms of teenagers in other cities and other parts of the country. They said that, oh, if they are doing this in Birmingham, if this is what the students are uh, subject, being subjected to in Birmingham, then in order to change a horrible situation, then we, we have to understand that we have to do this too. And so that, so that the images and the reports, the newspaper reports on the attacks on the abuse and the jailing of these students and, you know, of the young people, for example, in Albany, Albany, Georgia, the Albany campaign, which, uh, which lasted for years and, you know, the whole entire city was mobilized. But the, but the problem was that the started out with the teenagers, started out with them going to the bus, getting arrested, and then larger numbers being involved and, and getting all of this film footage, getting co- coverage of Selma, and the, uh, and 
the students in other parts of Georgia, and students in other parts of the South, and students in other parts of the country, said that we are being we are subjected to a similar kind of situation uh, and here, and we need to we want to protest what we are up against, just as those students in Albany, Georgia, who are protesting and going to jail and you know and being bailed out by their parents, etc. They said that that we are subjected to the same kind of discrimination, of lack of resources, lack of black teachers, uh, administrators, principals, et cetera, that we need to organize. And usually they would, they would just have a meeting, for example. They would say, let's have a meeting in the cafeteria and talk about the fact that Ms. Jones, who works in the cafeteria, was part of the demonstration that took place downtown two, two or three days ago. And she has now been fired by the city, by the school district. And so we are going to protest the firing of Miss Jones. And so they organize, they start singing, et cetera. And then they, they leave the cafeteria, then they leave the school and they march toward downtown, whatever city it is. And, and uh, such Baton Rouge, as I'm explaining, this is exactly what happened. And then the students, when they, now they, it was a reason it associated with the school, but then they marched downtown to protest what had happened, the arrest of other students or the arrest of workers or the arrest of teachers. And then they would go downtown and then they would be attacked by the police in during their march. And so that is what, and so, and so what, that's what we see. That's what we would, the film footage is, is of when the students initiate their own protests, when a specific issue has come up, they mobilize, they march, and then they are attacked. And then that serves as a way of initiating other young people to engage in the same, because they say, we have the same problem. We need to be doing this exact same thing. And so teenagers around the country saw, saw this and said, uh, we're going to protest uh, the situation that we're uh, being educated under in our town as well. You uh, tell readers that religion was central to these young people's involvement in the early civil rights movement. How so? Yes, the, 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 uh, I, re- it's called, I called it the Young Crusaders because crusaders were on a were religious and were on a religious campaign was uh, in the Middle Ages and and in each and every one of these students' testimony when they were interviewed by um, journalists or other people collecting information, the students would say that I'm doing this because it's right. It is the right thing to do. You have to keep in mind, though, they're being this message is being reinforced in their church. And at the same time, the meetings, the protest meetings, organizing the communities, etc., they're taking place in the churches. So these are children who are have grown up in the church, have un, who've been taught the, the beatitudes and, and, and what is right, what is a Christian thing to do. They are being instructed about the campaign that is being launched in their community. They are being instructed in the churches. And 
before they the protest begins, before this, once they gather in the churches, before the protest begins, they begin with prayer. They start with prayer. And to 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 try to protect them, ask God to protection as they engage in this protest. And so these are children who are very much churched. They have been, many of them, most of them grew up in the church. But at the same time, the protests, it's the protests themselves are being, are being organized in the churches. And as they participate in these protests, they ask for God's assistance, help, uh, uh, as they engage in this protest, so it so it was it was a religious it was a religious movement throughout for most of these children. Uh, it, it, it comes over again and again. They say, "Oh yes." If you look at the Little Rock Nine, for example, they say, "Yes." Each time the Little Rock Nine approached Central High School, if you recall, there would be these different times that they uh, would. Uh, were not allowed to enter Central High School, and then eventually the uh, airborne U.S. Airborne was called in to escort them in. But each time they just, they say they say we began with prayer. We began, there were ministers here with us as we got ourselves together to go to Central High School. We uh, engaged in the prayer, and then and then took off. At the same time, the students who were in these situations where they were the first ones to desegregate these schools and were subject to abuse, abuse of the language, taunting, et cetera, they, 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 were, uh, they, they were abused uh, in various ways by the teachers, teachers sometimes, but mostly the students who didn't want them there. And they, and and this, they, the ones who subjected this, they said they prayed about this. <laughs> you know, they, the uh, one of the Little Rock Nines said that there was a chapel in Central High School, and every day she went to that chapel that before she went to class to pray to, for strength to, for her to make it through that day. And so, and so, and so the religious aspect of the, of the students and the young people's uh, mobilization and protest was 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 very very prominent and very very important uh, to their success. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail, from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Your uh, title today is Distinguished Professor Emeritus of History and Education at the University of California, Riverside. You're the author of numerous books. You've, you've spent your academic career documenting and teaching the story of the civil rights effort in the United States. You tell readers in, this, in the book that this particular book has been decades in the making for you. Tell me its provenance. Why has it taken you so long to tell this story? Well, yes, it Yes, really, it, it has been a long time, and it took me a long time to to uh, to get this book out because I was interrupted by various things. <clears throat> the, the focus on children and teenagers 
came out of a book, a reference book that I did with Betty Collier Thomas at Temple University called My Soul is a Witness, a chronology of the civil rights era from 1854 to 1965. And that came out in 2000. Now, in the research for the book was carried on throughout the 1990s. So in the 1990s, I was reading the New York Times, the Southern School News, the Jet Magazine, reading stories about civil rights and collecting information on civil rights activism in the areas of, so keep in mind, this is a reference book, employment, public accommodations, housing, voting rights, entertainment, sports, the military, as well as education. And so, so My Soul is a Witness came out in 2000. And while I was working on that book, I began to notice all of the references to children and teenagers' participation in these civil rights protests and activism. And so I gathered that information about that from the New York Times, from Jet Magazine, from the Southern School News. I gathered that up and said, oh, I want to pursue this as a topic because it's, 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 it seems uh, that it's everywhere. You know, as we look at these protests, there's this mention of the children and the teenagers' participation. And so I initially, my, in 2001, was my first article on the subject. And it was on uh, black high school student activism. And I asked the question, well, you know, it was an urban phenomenon. And this uh, article was published in 2001. So that, so, so that was an article on black high school student activism. And it's coming out of the research that I've done on for my soul as a witness to reference. Then in 2001, I agreed to become editor of the journal, what was then the Journal of Negro History. So they twisted my arm and <laughs> said, oh, yes, you got to do this. And so in 2001, I became the editor of the Journal of Negro History. And the first thing I did was I changed the name to the Journal of African-American History. And my first uh, issue came out in 2000, 2002. And as a journal editor, <laughs> as a journal editor, I had to publish four four uh, issues each year and as and that took up all of my extra time so as I'm a journal you know the volume each volume of the journal of African American history at the minimum is 600 pages so I had to put together 600 pages old uh, every year and so that and so what I did I tried to integrate my interest in in student activism in, in young people's uh, activism, and I had actually a special issue of the Journal of African American History. It was in, um, uh, it was on uh, spring 2003 on the history of black student activism. So that, so that was 2003, okay? <laughs> so I'm up to 2000, it was 2001, that was 2003, and I had this special issue. But that issue dealt with college students as well as uh, high school students, the special issue. So I'm continuing to work on the journal, producing this visa. And then I hit, and then we get up to the thing that makes the historians, that makes historians careers, you know, the book, anniversaries. 
anniversaries. So, for example, on the 50th anniversary of the Brown decision, I had a, had a conference. I was teaching at Teachers College at Columbia University, and I and I had a graduate student conference in uh, 2004, and then did a special issue that came out in 2005 on the 50th anniversary of the Brown decision. So then the next one, I said, okay, now what other anniversaries are coming up? Well, the anniversary that I, that I, that I said that was really important for me would be the 50th anniversary of the Children's Crusade in Birmingham. So that is, it was in 1963. So the 50th anniversary would be 2013. And so I said, okay, all right, so here is an anniversary that I can prepare to uh, do the research and, and gather research and do something to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Birmingham campaign and the Children's Crusade. But I'm still doing the journal. So what are the journals? So, so I decided that I would have my students at the University of California Riverside, I would have my students, I, I, they had me teach the senior writing assignment, the senior essay, the senior paper that they had, research paper that the history majors had to, had to write and prepare. So I had the students in the, in the history seminar, in undergraduate seminar, this is an undergraduate seminar, uh, begin to gather information on children's protests and teenagers' protests in various parts of the country. And so, and, when I, and we went from my soul as a witness, I had my soul, the students began there, and then they went to uh, Jet Magazine, or they went to the local newspaper to gather information on uh, the protests in Chicago, the protests in Milwaukee, the protests in Cleveland, so, so it was like teams of students. They would say, okay, we're going to work on, on the protests in Cleveland, what the, the children did. Another a team of students, they would work on Birmingham. Another team of students would work on Selma. Another team of students. And so, this, so the students gathered this information on these protests in these different places, southern as well as northern cities. And they produced PowerPoint presentations of the campaign in that city. So these, so from the students' PowerPoint presentation of what the research that they found on these cities, we created an exhibit, an exhibit called uh, uh, Children and Teenagers' Contributions to the Civil Rights Movement. And the exhibit was open on, in May of 2013, the 50th anniversary of the Children's Crusade. And so that was the, so, 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 so it went from the students doing research on these individual cities and towns, producing PowerPoint presentations, and then from the PowerPoint presentation to produce posters for an exhibit. And the exhibit opened on the 50th anniversary of the Children's Crusade, May of 2013. I had other students, the subs after that, they wanted to, to uh, do this research. So we had another expanded the exhibit for 2014, because that was the 50th anniversary of Freedom Summer and the Freedom Schools. And many of these uh, protests in Chicago, in Milwaukee, in Cleveland, 
when the, the school desegregation protests began and they asked the students to boycott school on the day, on the specific day to protest, on those days, the students would attend, many students, not all of them, but many students would attend freedom schools that were opened up throughout the city, opened up uh, in New York. You had like 100 freedom schools open on their February 2000, uh, 1964 protests. You had in Chicago, you had 50 freedom schools open. So on the days of the protests, they didn't want it to be uh, just a, a free day for the children. They wanted them to go to these freedom schools to learn about the importance of their participation in that boycott, in that one-day boycott of the public school system, showing how that is related to the larger civil rights campaigns that are taking place throughout the country. And so, and so you had those freedom schools open in Boston, New York, Chicago, uh, Milwaukee, Cleveland, et cetera, during those protests. Then in 1964, of course, we had Freedom Summer. And, and the freedom schools associated with Freedom Summer are the ones that people most know about. They know about the freedom schools and the fact that, you know, they opened these during Freedom Summer and sometimes they were attacked, sometimes they were bombed, et cetera. We actually published the, newspaper, the, the newspapers that the children in Mississippi produced in the freedom schools have, uh, were collected and have been published. And so the freedom schools in Mississippi were, were very were well known and, 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 and famous. And so the 50th anniversary uh, of the freedom schools served as a, as a, as a reason for the exhibit, expanding exhibit in 2014. But most people didn't realize that those freedoms, the freedom schools had started in Boston, New York, you know, uh, Chicago, before Mississippi. And so that's the information, that's the new information that, uh, that I'm uh, presenting in this book. And so that it was the students who did the research, did PowerPoint presentations. We, from, this, from their PowerPoint, we created exhibit. The exhibit opened on the 50th anniversary of the Children's Crusade. And then the following year, an expanded version opened on the 50th anniversary of Freedom Summer and the Freedom Schools. And then that exhibit traveled around uh, to other university libraries in the country. It went to Drexel, it went to Drexel University uh, in Philadelphia. It went to Prince George's County uh, Community College in Maryland. And uh, it was in Atlanta, uh, schools in Atlanta. So the, so, so the exhibit traveled. But then <clears throat> when the, you had the opening of the exhibit, the uh, sponsors, the university sponsors who were sponsoring the exhibit would get in touch with young people in that location who, were, who had participated in those protests. And then they would tell their story about why, what they did, why they did it, and what happened. And so, at, so and this was, and I usually was videotaped. And, uh, and what was really interesting to me was that once I began doing this research and working with my students and, you know, on the, 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 the campaign, people in Riverside, California, Riverside, California is not a large town. It's, it's barely a city. I mean, it's, 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 you know, it's like a suburb of Los Angeles. And I would run, meet people in Riverside and they would say, and I would say, oh, I'm working on the 
student protests and the demonstrations and the, and the boycotts that took place in Chicago and New York and Cleveland and other cities. And the people in Riverside say, oh, yeah, we had that. <laughs> Not because I'm just arriving at Riverside. Keep in mind, I didn't get there until 2007. And I said, well, no, no, I said, this was a major civil rights campaign where because students, children of color were not allowed to integrate into all white public schools, boycotts were organized and thousands and hundreds of thousands of students stayed away from schools on that day. And, and many of them attended freedom schools. And the people in Riverside, California said, oh, yeah, that's what we did. I said, what? <laughs> they said, yes, that's what we we had. We did that in 1965. And so I said, what, well, what happened? And they said, what happened was, this is, now just keep in mind, this is 1965, Riverside, California. They would not allow the Mexican-American and African-American children to attend all-white public schools. They had separate schools for Blacks and Mexicans. The major school... Parents had complained about the Lowell School because that was for the separate black school for children, black children in Riverside. The parents had complained about it over and over about its condition, its poor condition. It was, you know, with rain and water coming to classroom. They said to be, you know, please allow our children to attend other schools in the city. Schools officials said no, they did not, they, they would not the students to be transferred. So on in September of 1965, on the night before the first day of classes, the first day of school, mysteriously, the low public school was caught on fire. <laughs> it, was, it was a fire. It was a major fire in the separate black school in Riverside. And so they had a meeting. The parents said, okay, there's a fire at school. They can't go to school. They're going to have to allow the children to attend other schools in the district. So the parents met with the school superintendent and say, okay, now you're going to allow our students to attend other schools. And the superintendent said, well, well, um, it wasn't all burnt down. <laughs> there are some classes that could that's where they could, they could be in the auditorium. The auditorium wasn't burnt down quite so badly and stuff, so they could still go there. Uh, so, so, so there won't be any need to transfer them to. That's when they called the boycott. <laughs> the parents said, okay, that's it. We're boycotting. We're going to boycott the school. And they boycott. They launched the boycott that first week of classes in September in Riverside. Faculty members and students from the University of California, Riverside, served as the teachers in the freedom schools that were open for the African-American and Mexican-American students who uh, who uh, were <coughs> uh, boycotting, who were boycotting school. And the boycott lasted five days, five straight days, unlike the boycotts in the other cities, which were one-day affair, and then another one, one day affair. In Riverside, the boycott lasted five days because after the fifth day, the superintendent and the Board of Education in Riverside decided that they would 
that they would allow the Mexican-American children and the African-American children to attend, to, to, to integrate the all-white schools. So when we had the opening of the exhibit and included the Riverside California story, I wasn't able to identify, or they weren't able to uh, put me in touch with anyone who organized that boycott in Riverside in 1965, the parents, you know, and the political leaders, et cetera, who organized, I couldn't, they weren't around. I couldn't find any of them. But I found the students who were the first ones who desegregated the all white schools in Riverside. So at that inauguration of the exhibit in 2014, individuals who were the first ones to desegregate all white public schools in Riverside, California, spoke about their experiences. And I have that on videotape. They, they talked about how sometimes they were shunned by students. Sometimes they, sometimes they were, his students would make fun of them, try to make fun of them, et cetera. But eventually they said that they, uh, they got used to them being around and, and, they, uh, and they actually graduated from those schools. So, uh, so yes, it was, it was a long journey and and when I uh, and had the, and had these exhibits, I had these uh, opened up around, uh, opened the various university libraries around the country. So that was 2014, 2015. Then we had 2015 was a centennial year for the journal. So I had to do all of that, and uh, I uh, retired in 2015 from the University of California Emeritus. Emeritus in 2015. But I wanted to uh, return to New Orleans because I had left, I had come to the University of California Riverside in 2007 because I had been teaching at Dillard University in New Orleans and it had not really, was not recovering from Hurricane Katrina. And so I had various job offers and stuff and I, Sterling Stuckey was had just retired from the University of California Riverside in the history department. And they offered me the position there uh, because eventually the history department at Dillard was consolidated into a humanities department where they had English history, African, African-American studies. So, so there was no longer a history department. So I, so I, so I arrived at, in, in California at the University of California Riverside in, 2000, in 2007 retired in 2015, returned to New Orleans in 2015, and met with colleagues at Xavier University. Um, I had had a visiting appointment at Xavier back like in like 2001, 2002, so I knew the faculty in the history department. So when I I had, when I mentioned, you know, the projects that I was working on, I said, oh, well, there's all of this activism in Louisiana, that in each of these cities in Louisiana, high school students and children desegregated public schools, but they also organized all these protests. And so two colleagues at um, uh, uh, Xavier University said that, well, we will, I'll get my students at Xavier to document the protests in cities in Louisiana, New Orleans, Baton Rouge, Shreveport, and Bogalusa. 
And so students at Xavier University engaged in research on these protests in those cities, created a PowerPoint presentation of the protests in those cities that the children were engaged in. And then we mounted an exhibit at Xavier University in 2018, children's and teenagers' contributions to the civil rights movement in Louisiana. And at the inaugural event in in February of 2018, the inaugural opening of the exhibit that they had created, similar to the exhibit that I had created in California, Open up that we had a panel where people who who were children, teenagers, et cetera, in the NAACP Youth Council participated in in protests in New Orleans in the 1950s and 1960s were there and described what they went through, what happened, what they did, what the consequences were. And so so that the, the connection was made between the individuals who were teenagers and children and teenagers at the time that are now being depicted in the exhibit, they came at the opening of the exhibit and, and, and told their story about what happened and what happened and what they did. So yes, it's a law. So, okay, so that gets you up to 2018. Okay. And so after I did the exhibit in uh, 2018 with at Xavier University with uh, with my colleague Sharon Desir Queer and Sarisi Olatunji, when when I did that, then I said, okay, now I need to sit down and write this book. <laughs> and so I was I was retired. I retired as editor of the Journal of African American History. In my last issue was the fall of 2018, and therefore I was able then to sit down and write the book. The young crusaders uh, based on the research that I had done and what my students had done uh, in California and what students had done here in New Orleans. Well, it must have been quite a, a, a compelling experience for your students to learn what their forebears had done to advance the movement. I, I wanted to, um, we have about 20 minutes left in the conversation. I wanted to get some of the voices of people that you've referenced. In the telling of that story, you, you tell us about the major points that are covered in the book, the Birmingham Children's Can- uh, Crusade, uh, the uh, Little Rock Nine, and, and the individual activism. I want to put a couple of those voices on as we um, finish out our time together, just so you can Talk about the, what you learned about their experience doing this at such a young age. Let's start with Carlotta Walls. She is one of the, of the so-called Little Rock Nine, and uh, she was, I believe, 14 years old. And yeah, she was the youngest. September of 1957, when President Eisenhower called uh, the 101st Airborne and then later nationalized the National Guard in, in the state uh, to protect their rights to go to school. Let's listen to her. I was not about to uh, succumb to that level of mentality that that we confronted on a daily basis. I stayed above that, and that's what helped me to to get uh, uh, through the the whole year, um, is just knowing that I had a right to be here. um, And um, I, I I just stayed above the whole situation. I don't know where I was when they were having this nonviolent training. 
because I don't recall any of that. And uh, I, I've been asked many times about that as well in various groups. And, I, and they wanted to know, uh, you know, about my nonviolent training. And I said, no, we had on-job training. <laughs> What did you learn about the, the bravery of the young people who took on these causes? Yes, as, as I alluded to before, the, the uh, Colorado Wall uh, was the youngest. And what was really interesting is, is, is that she said that she, was, she lived close to Central High School and that she had to take a bus from a house past Central High School to get to the all-Black high school. So in other words, so that she felt she had a right to attend Central High School because that was, that was her neighborhood school. It literally was her the school that, high school that was closest to her home. And so we learned that. And then um, we, you, you had the uh, conditions that in the school, the daily conditions. And so, so she and the other little Roth and I mentions that they were, uh, paint was thrown on their uh, locker. Uh, they were spit at, they would, fire bombs would be, uh, would be, in other words, matches would be lit in the, in the, in the school auditorium and thrown onto them. They were, uh, knocked down and flights of stairs. Uh, they had uh, food thrown at them in the cafeteria. And so the, and they, and they persisted. They, they stayed uh, because, and, 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 and some of it was even, even worse. Uh, um, Martilla Beals, Patillo, in her autobiography about the incident, she describes uh, once uh, a night in, uh, I, I guess this would be like in October or November of 1957, when uh, her, her grandmother and she and her brother were at home and, and they heard a car pull up and then shots were fired into their house. They ducked down. She describes them ducking down from, you know, trying to protect themselves, put out the lights, et cetera. And then the grandmother went to the closet and got her shotgun and then went to the window and fired the shotgun at a, a, a trash can so that it would make a lot of noise. Boom! She, the grandmother, she fired her. And she, she said that, and they heard people scampering away. And from that point forward, her grandmother kept the rifle there ready in the evening in case someone would try come around and try to shoot into their homes again for doing that. So, uh, so it was not just the children's bravery uh, that was on display in these desegregation uh, uh, campaigns. It was their parents and, you know, and their relatives and stuff helping them and, 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 and providing them support uh, 
while they were in this very, very difficult situation. And, uh, and, and, and most of the, the young people say that they uh, would not have been able to do this without uh, the support of the community, of their family, and, and their friends. Let me get another video in here. This is Claudette Colvin, uh, age 15, and she was involved in a bus protest in Montgomery, Alabama at that young age. Let's watch. That day when the bus driver asked me to get up, I had this feeling come over me. It felt like Harriet Tubman was holding me down, hands were holding me down on one shoulder, and Sojourner Truth hands were holding me down on another shoulder. And I was glued to the seat, and I could hear the white passioners saying, she got to move, she got to move, that's the law, she got to move. And I felt like this is my time to take a stand for justice. Dr. Franklin Rosa Parks is memorialized in our history for refusing to move on December 1st, 1955 in Montgomery. But your book says that young people were also involved in similar campaigns in various cities during that same time period. What was their role? Yeah, well, the uh, uh, Claudia Colvin uh, was one of the plaintiffs, along with Rosa Parks, in the lawsuit that was brought that eventually led to the desegregation of the end of the desegregation in the Montgomery, uh, in, in Montgomery, uh, following the boycott. That is, uh, that is Claudette Colby, Colvin. Well, Claudette Colvin was one, she testified in court and said about their, her experiences, et cetera, uh, in court. But you also had instances where the teenagers would be on a bus and they would they would refuse to give up their seats to a white passenger. They would be arrested, take it to it, and then the information would uh, would get back to their families, but also get back to their uh, their friends. And the the parents other students said once they heard this, heard about what had this has happened in Tallahassee, for example. The once they heard about it, they the students then marched over to the police station or to the headquarters of the transit company uh, to protest the arrest of of those uh, those students. And so it was. And so it, it was. Um, it, sometimes. These students would be uh, would be punished by their teachers and the principal, who were afraid that this would bring about, you know, a, have a negative effect on them and their position. And and, and so the the uh, sometimes they were punished by, and sometimes they were expelled uh, from their school. Uh, but once they were expelled, once these students were <laughs> expelled, what happened was that the rest of the student body then said, oh, we're going to go, we're going to boycott until that student is allowed to return. And so, and so it, it, it had a snowball effect. So that one student being arrested led to marches and protests in the in downtown area to, uh, to the police station, to the transit station. That would be one. Or the students who were in a protest got arrested and then were expelled from 
their high school would then lead the students themselves. They would protest. They would form a protest. They would march. They would boycott the school until that student was allowed to return. So, uh, so that so that Claudette Colvin uh, was was just one example of the teenagers who who launched these protests. Sometimes the teenagers would go into a restaurant. You have to keep in mind that the Greensboro, the Greensboro Four, ones who launched the sit-ins in uh, February of 1960, who launched the, the protests and, and that led to the creation of, of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, when the sit-ins began, student sit-ins began, those were teenagers. All four of them were teenagers who had been involved in uh, various kinds of NAAC protests as members of the NAACP Youth Council in the late 1950s. And the, and the students, these, and these are teenagers, these are, they're in college, they're in North Carolina A&T uh, College University now, but they, they were, but they were still, they were 18, they were, all, they were freshmen. So they were still teenagers. And they uh, told people in the NAACP what they were going to do the day before. And the NAACP said, okay, you go ahead and do that. You go ahead and have the sit-in. And, and if you are arrested, then we will bail you out. And so, and, 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 and so, so you have to keep in mind that many times, you know, I deal with teenagers, but teenagers would include community college students, for example, uh, or freshmen and sophomore in college and stuff. So, so but the, the, the Greensboro Four, who started the sit-in, student sit-in movement in 1960, were teenagers. Um, in the few minutes that we have left, I wanted to bring it to the modern age, because you've referenced so many uh, stories that are detailed in your book, The Young Crusaders. But at the end, you look in our times. You tell readers that after about a 20-year hiatus of young people being activists and involved in the 21st century, we're seeing a reawakening of it. Uh, Greta Thunberg and the climate activism movement, the Parkland students and the March for Their Lives rallies, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. What would your advice be to the young people who are galvanizing around particular issues now based on your research? Well, I'm, I'm really heartened by what the uh, young people, the teenagers and the young people are doing in, in the uh, Black Lives Matter movement for Black Lives, the March for Our Lives, the climate, the, the, the climate uh, uh, protesters, the uh, students uh, led by uh, Greta Thurber. I'm, I'm, I'm really, really heartened by the, that act, act through their activities. Uh, the, they engage in marches, they engage in protests, they petition uh, legislatures, et cetera. Uh, and so my advice would, to the young people would be that, oh, what about boycotts? That is, the, that is, they've been most effective and most successful in bringing about social changes uh, in, um, during the civil rights era and afterwards. You had uh, boycotts and things. And so that, the, so that if these, uh, for example, the students that are concerned about the climate, the, the coming climate disaster that will be will face, that they will be facing, and the failure 
of the government to rein in the fossil fuel industry. That is, there's some regulations put in effect, but then more leases, the government sells more leases to the fossil fuel companies to to dig for more oil and gas and stuff. And so so there's a real problem here. And I would recommend that that the young people think about how they can utilize the boycott to bring about some kind of change in the uh, in the behavior in the practices of not just the government but also of the fossil fuel industry. So, if for example, if they why don't they they target one of the large fossil fuel companies for a boycott to say that we are not going to buy your gas anymore, and then that fossil fuel company. Exxon, Mobil, Chevron, whatever, when they target, then the others will recognize that they can be targeted too and and begin to move more uh, expeditiously and rapidly to a shift to uh, renewable renewable, uh, uh, fuels. That is, is the, the young people really should think in terms of targeting for boycotts those companies and those industries that pollute the air, the land, and the water, and and demand that they change their uh, change their their activity or, or or reduce the amount of pollution that they're putting in the air that would be my advice to young people that is that is boycotts have been very very successful and meaningful uh in the past and brought about all kinds of keep in mind the montgomery bus boycott kicked off these these protests it's a boycott and i think the young people need to think in terms of how they can target target some of these uh fossil fuel companies a boycott and then uh, go from there. The story of the boycotts, the protest marches, the sit-ins and others are all told in VP Franklin's new book, The Young Crusaders, The Untold Story of the Children and Teenagers Who Galvanized the Civil Rights Movement. Thank you so much, Dr. Franklin, for spending an hour with C-SPAN. I'm very happy. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome. 